Hello, everyone, and welcome to Heart Matters, a show about all aspects of heart health brought to you in partnership with the Providence Heart Institute and Boston Scientific. The Providence Heart Institute is a leading integrated network of cardiovascular care with a focus on putting our patients at the heart of everything we do. And we're committed to making a positive difference in every life we touch. As part of that commitment, we're bringing the doctors to you. I'm Dr. John Wagoner, interventional cardiologist practicing in Olympia, Washington. And joining me today is Dr. Richard Wright from Providence in Santa Monica, California, and Dr. John Mignone with Providence Swedish in Seattle, Washington. They're both heart failure specialists in the field of cardiology. In this episode of Heart Matters, we're talking about heart failure, what it is, how it differs from other heart conditions we discussed on previous episodes of this podcast, along with the treatments and prevention. Hello, it's great to have both of you guys here today. Good to be here. Thank you. Hey, uh, let's start out, I guess, by learning a little bit about both of you. Can you just give us a little background on your work at Providence and Providence Swedish and how you chose the field of cardiology and, and heart failure uh, specifically? Okay, uh, I'll start. Uh, so I'm Richard Wright. I'm in Santa Monica, California. Um, I'll go back a few decades. I started life as a basic scientist, and I actually thought I was going to end up doing that. Uh, but then after medical school, I found that the field of cardiology was uh, an incredible blend of uh, basic science, meaning how do things work and how do things go wrong, and then having the ability to make things better. And unlike some areas of medicine, cardiology has had an explosion of uh, advances that have allowed us to make people not only feel better, but live better, live longer. And I got into heart failure because my mentors uh, back in Boston were some of the leaders in heart failure of, of that era and still actually to this day. So it was an interesting area that has captured my imagination and my professional efforts now for all the decades that I've been in practice. Thank you, thank you Jack. Yeah. Uh... Exactly. Very similar story. So I did my original PhD work in stem cell and stem cell biology, making animal models of neural and, and cardiac stem cell regeneration. I initially got into medicine as an oncologist, but really was attracted to cardiology because it was exactly as Dr. Wright was saying, a, a perfect confluence of, of basic science, critical care management, uh, and, and patient care. So it, it met all the things that I really enjoy about uh, clinical medicine. That's great that you say that too, John. I, I find that heart failure patients are often some of the sick, sickest patients that we have in cardiology and, and require a lot of a lot of extra care. And, uh, and you guys are both excellent physicians and it's great to have you here today. You know, I, I found that the, the phrase heart failure is often confusing to patients. You know, what, can, a, can a heart actually fail? And, and what do we really mean when we're saying heart failure? Uh, Richard, do you mind commenting? Yeah, on that? <laughs> Boy, you've hit the nail on the head, Jack. Uh, I mean, for decades, we've been trying to come up with a better phrase than heart failure, partly because it has such negative connotations. And when you first tell a patient that they have heart failure, that's, that doesn't sound very good. So if anybody has any suggestions of how to improve that, we're, we're very willing to accept whatever you may bring forward. But the heart, if you, if you view the most simplistic view of the heart, the heart's a pump. And can a pump fail? Sure. Think about uh, any engine or pump in the world. Think about the, uh, let's talk about an old car that was 
eight cylinders and then sometimes uh, a couple spark plugs would go out or you'd have a problem to be running on six cylinders or maybe five or four and at some point it didn't have enough horsepower to do the job and that's what happens in uh, some forms of heart failure where there's just not enough vigor uh, of the heart to to do its job which is basically to pump blood at a certain pressure and at a certain volume without flooding the lungs so there, there are many ways that the heart can go wrong but we use this umbrella term of heart failure to really connote that the heart is not capable of performing up to snuff. And although the term sounds bad, uh, the good news is uh, sometimes with the help of interventions or devices, but most commonly with altering biology, these days mostly with medicines, that we can make the heart, in fact, step up to the plate and maybe not hit a home run every time, but, you know, hitting singles all the time is good enough. So we can make people get better, uh, usually with medicines. That's fantastic. John, what kind of patients are we talking about here? What, what kind of patients get heart failure? That's a great question. So the, the biggest risk factor for heart failure in the United States ultimately comes down to advancing age. Um, the belief is that one in four people after the age of 40 will experience heart failure in their lifetime. You say uh, forty is old? Yeah. <laughs> the um, the uh, and, and and so and it used to be one in five until just this past year it published one in four and it's again a testament to our aging population. There are the usual suspects of cardiovascular disease. There's coronary artery disease, the most common reason, but then it's the things that lead to advancing heart, you know, the wear and tear on the heart. So it's, it's diabetes, obesity, kidney disease hypertension, tobacco use, illicit drug use. Um, and then there are the unfortunate, the non-modifiable risks, like the things that you can't control, which are genetics, viral exposures, um, diseases called infiltrative diseases. Um, so tissue going into your heart and, and worsening its function, autoimmune disorders, and then electrical abnormalities of the heart. One of the exciting things about heart failure is that with the dawn of new therapies, our new imaging modalities, we're just learning so much more on a yearly basis of why our the, 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 the seminal article that was written in 1980 is very different from now of the why of why people are getting heart failure. Wow. You know, I, I imagine some of the people here um, that are listening to the podcast might wonder, you know, do I have heart failure? What, Richard, what kind of symptoms would patients see in themselves if they were having signs of heart failure, that their pump was not pumping blood forward well enough? Yeah. So one of the problems with heart failure, you know, if you ask, am I pregnant? Well, that's an easy thing to answer. Uh, if you ask, do I have a heart failure? It's not that easy. And the reason is there's, there's not one test that with 100% certainty can say yay or nay, you have heart failure. So basically, it's a complex uh, array of things, one of which is exercise intolerance, right? And that could be I just, I've started curtailing my activities because I can't do it anymore. I used to walk the golf course. Now I take the golf cart. Uh, I avoid stairs. I take the elevator. Breathlessness is one of the cardinal symptoms. So if people get more shorter breath uh, with activity or even sometimes at rest. Sometimes they have overload of fluid in the system. It shows up in various ways, but commonly is edema in the feet and ankles. And these things all say that the heart is struggling a little bit. Person may be able to do things, but less well than they did before. 
there are tests, John mentioned a moment ago, imaging, and we've been focusing a lot in the recent decades on advanced imaging because we've gotten so much better with computers and electronics and chips and things that make it so much better. So we can image the heart in many different ways and look at is the heart of normal thickness and of normal, uh, does it contract normally? Does it relax normally? Do the valves of the heart work normally? I sort of look at the, the heart, I tell my patients like a house where you have plumbing and you have wiring and you have doors and windows and all those things can go wrong in an old house and they can go wrong in a heart as well. So with different modalities, imaging, uh, picture taking, be that with x-rays or ultrasound or nuclear medicine, there are a lot of different ways. And then importantly, recently, blood testing, because when the heart starts to struggle, there are telltale signs in the blood uh, that we can detect. And when the heart's unhappy, it expresses that unhappiness by releasing substances into the blood, which are then detectable with straightforward blood tests. And so using all these things, uh, the history of the patient, examining the patient, imaging the patient, uh, electrically, we can look with EKGs, we can get blood tests. You can come up with a really good diagnosis of whether the symptoms the person has should be put into the category of heart failure. Wonderful. John, you had indicated before a, a, an astonishing statistic of one in five patients having heart failure. I mean, what what are, what are we talking about, like on a national or an international basis? How many patients are we talking about that can be categorized by doctors as having heart failure? Is this this sounds really predominant? And is it? Do you think it's getting better or worse over time? <laughs> it's a good question. It's it's the so yeah. This is a little bit of a shock and off uh, situation here. Um, Heart failure is growing simply because the population is also aging. And so it, it, but if you go through the statistics of it, you know, one in four after the age of 40, 30% of people within a year after they have a heart attack. But then there's the more striking um, cases of, you know, of people who are morbidly obese, 70% of people within 20 years and 90% after 30 years, which is why there's actually been some recent articles showing the, um, you know, really attacking obesity in terms of management of heart failure. It's estimated somewhere around 10 million people across the United States, but that's of the people who are dying from, you know, kind of at the advanced stages of heart failure. Once diagnosed, 50% of people will pass away within five years of diagnosis. And so when you think about that, that's actually worse than most cancers that are out there. There's only about four cancers with a worse prognosis than heart failure. In King County, where I live in Seattle, we, we lose about 16 people each day from heart failure. And when we did a review a few years ago, we expect a 62% increase in caseload in the next decade. And it's a tremendous cost burden about, you know, the last time I, you know, a big comprehensive review of cost was done was about a decade ago. And at that time, it was about $30 billion spent on management of heart failure, with 80% of that spent on hospitalization. Now, there have been in the last decade alone, several new treatments to manage heart failure. And so if people are appropriately treated, we should be improving the prognosis over time, but it's making sure that people receive that treatment going forward. 
Richard, you, you had kind of indicated some of the symptoms. You talked about breathlessness, exercise intolerance, you know, of probably what patients could experience when they have, you know, early signs of heart failure that might kind of key them in. Can you give kind of our audience a, an, an idea about what, you know, heart failure looks like as it becomes more severe, some of the patients that we see in the hospital, for instance? Sure. So if you go to any emergency room today, there will be people who will show up and say, I can't breathe. And, you know, and sometimes people can't breathe because they have pneumonia or whatever, but a lot of times they can't breathe because the lungs are flooded. And if your lungs are flooded with liquid, then not only is the work of breathing very hard, but the, the, the ability for oxygen to get into the bloodstream is impaired. So uh, you'll have people showing up in the emergency department where last night they couldn't lay down. They had to sit up in a chair because every time they laid down, they felt like they were suffocating. They couldn't breathe. They come into the emergency room in an extreme state. And that's the, the sort of the furthest type of heart failure where your lungs are just so wet that you're, uh, you can die from that. And of course, those people, you, you give them oxygen, you give them medicine, some, some of them temporarily need breathing support, et cetera, but you can usually get them over the hurdle uh, of that. Uh, so that's one far extreme, but the vast majority of people are living with heart failure and uh, they, they tend a lot of them to just chalk up their symptoms to getting old or they blame it on their hip or whatever. And they realize they're just not doing much. They've curtailed things. Uh, I had one, a patient today who asked me, can I start dancing again? Because he loves dancing with his wife, but hadn't been dancing in the last six <clears> months because he couldn't dance uh, because every time he tried to, he couldn't breathe. Right. And, and today I told him go out and tango tonight because he, he can do that now that he's on the medicines. And that's a true story from, two hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're not telling him to tango if he's a waltzer, though. <laughs> you, you can hurt things. That way. Um, John, you, you had indicated like some of the overlap of, of heart failure and how it, how it touches on. And, and I think Richard, too, and it indicates so many things that, that touch the heart that can cause heart failure, electrical problems, plumbing problems, all that stuff. You know, but how does a heart failure specialist differ in the way that they practice cardiology than maybe those other specialties, for instance? That's the you know heart heart failure special heart failure tends to be the culmination of worsening heart disease, wh whether it's from a blockage in the blood flow, an electrical problem, a valve problem. What it essentially boils down to is the syndromes that occur if the heart stops functioning. If you just to go back to the little bit to the basic science side, if a heart is two to three billion cells, all electrically synchronized by the electricity that your heart generates, it, the heart failure is a loss of that efficiency. And many different disease pathways can cause that. So if your valves that make the blood move forward only start to leak backwards, you will lose that efficiency. If you have one of the three major blood vessels that are supposed to apply, you know, supply blood to the, this you know, elegant system goes down, you will lose that efficiency. Um, if you start to, you know, just the aging heart as it starts to fibrose or stiffen, you will lose that efficiency. And so where the heart failure doctor acts is how they use a, medications, procedures. They use all the disciplines of cardiology to try to regain that efficiency. 
now the the mainstay is medication. So medications are basically about 80% of the treatment of heart failure. And then you try to figure out will if we tweak the electrical system will we improve it more if we tweak the um, the the valve system will we improve it more if we tweak the uh blood supply system will we improve it more and that that's the discipline of heart failure is everything focused on getting those two to three billion cells or however many cells are still there working in synchrony to generate the force that your body needs to supply blood. So heart failure specialists are, are very much working in concert with our colleagues in cardiology, cardiovascular surgery and vascular surgery to make that system as efficient as we can for as long as we can. And then, you know, advanced heart failure physicians like myself and, and Richard are trained to recognize when is it time to say, that this system can no longer be tweaked. And then at that time, we're looking into consideration for heart transplants, consideration for artificial hearts, or consideration for, for palliative services and, 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 and end of life services. But Dr. Wright, myself, focused very much in that tweaking of the system for as long as we can, and then uh, getting them to the next stages. Yeah, Jack, I'd like to add that the, the difference between a heart failure specialist and a general cardiologist uh, is really our familiarity and our facility with using readily available things. It, it's like it's like a chef. I mean, everybody has the same ingredients. How come some chefs do a better job? And part of that is familiarity. It's doing it over and over. And the average primary care doc doesn't have very many, even though there are tons of patients with heart failure, the average primary care doc doesn't have as much experience of how do you manipulate uh, a dozen different medicine potentials that can be used for a heart failure patient to make a patient better. Because it, it's a little bit different for everybody. It depends on lots of variables, their blood pressure and their age and their kidney function and their blood potassium level, et cetera. So we are more familiar with it. And we also push the envelope a little bit. We're much more tolerant, for example, of somebody whose blood pressure may be a little on the low side because that's what we deal with every day. I mean, I guess somebody could teach me how to take care of metastatic breast cancer, but if that faced me, I wouldn't have a clue what to do right now. And I think that somebody with significant heart failure really should see a heart failure specialist because this field has become a niche specialty within the house of cardiology. And as John said, we take a holistic view of our patients. If I need a structural something done, I'm not going to be the one who does it. But if I, if somebody has a hole in their heart that needs to be patched or a valve that needs to be repaired, or they have to be ablated for an arrhythmia that's causing them harm or have a special type of pacemaker put in, I have specialists I can call on within the house of cardiology to help my patient. 2% of the people are going to fail all these approaches. And as John said, those are going to be the people that need mechanical devices or transplants, or maybe in the future, some gene transplants or something. But right now it's medicines, 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 but the, the secret sauce is how to use those and, and when to use those. Yeah, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw in there too. I'm an interventional cardiologist, not a heart failure specialist at all, but I have to say that the heart failure specialists are, are some of the most esteemed within the field of cardiology. They take care of usually the, some of the sickest patients 
in in the whole field of medicine and and a lot of their treatments require a, a lot of nuance and a lot of monitoring uh, it, it's very easy with their treatments uh, their patients often have other organ failures and that sort of thing, and it requires management of all of those organ failures and uh, and uh, and that sort of thing. And the management of those medications requires a lot of subtlety and a lot of monitoring. And so, kudos to 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 the field there, and and um, uh, and like I said, much respect. So hey, that's um, true, Jack. I yeah. can admit that I had a patient who had end stage heart failure, really on the verge of needing a transplant. And that particular young gentleman had 172 office visits in my office in a two-year period of time because that's what it took to keep him working, functional, out of the hospital, and avoiding a mechanical heart or a heart transplant. And just like you said, this isn't, uh, I see a patient, pat him and say, I'll see you in a year. That, that's not the typical heart failure patient that a heart failure specialist sees. Yeah, and I, 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 my staff know too. I, I take care of some heart failure patients, and when they really get very sick, on the verge of needing to be hospitalized, I'll start, you know, I'll start increasing their cadence of seeing me in the office, like every week, you know, and I'll make small adjustments in their meds. And the staff know that, you know, they have a hard time fitting those patients in, but we, we make it happen, and that's what it takes to for their them to maintain a good lifestyle, quality of life, and that sort of thing. So Richard, you had kind of indicated too, you know, something as insidious, you know, and and subtle as just being out of breath, you know, with, you know, walking or climbing stairs or something like that. You know, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this get out of breath, uh, you know, maybe, and, and they've assumed that it's because they're getting old, out of shape, getting overweight. How would they know that they have heart failure? When do they need to be going to the doctor and not just attributing that to those other things? It's not that easy to distinguish sometimes. Uh, you're right. I mean, there, there aren't a lot of 40 or 50 year olds playing professional sports, right? So even at, at youth, these are people, John said, you know, this is a disease mostly of uh, advanced age. There are a lot of 20 year olds with heart failure. So if you're young and you're having shortness of breath, that, that's a real problem. Now, if you're getting older and you're getting shorter breath, it may be just because you're out of shape and deconditioned. That's true. Or you could have other things running the gamut from a low blood count to to impaired lungs because you were a smoker, et cetera. So I would say that if you notice a change, certainly if things have changed, if you said something's different in the last month, I used to be able to go bowling or whatever you like to do. And now I'm avoiding. I can't do it anymore because I'm short of breath. And certainly if you have other things like you shouldn't have swollen ankles and have fluid appearing in your lower legs uh, in a normal person. That shouldn't occur. Maybe if you're on a flight to Europe temporarily, but in every day at the end of the day, if your ankles are swollen up and you can't breathe, you need to see somebody. Now, for most people, they're going to go see their primary care physician as the entry point. They normally wouldn't first see a cardiologist. Uh, sometimes they do. But I would say the touchstone would be your primary doc. And your loved ones, if your family members have noticed that you're curtailing your activities because you can't breathe or you don't have the pep and energy and stamina, then at least you should run a flag up the flagpole and say, maybe, in fact, my heart is having a problem. 
you know, one thing I was fascinated to learn when I was early in my training of medicine was heart failure patients often, you know, if you take somebody that has severe lung disease, emphysema, that sort of thing, they lay down in bed, they actually feel better. You take a heart failure patient and you lay them down flat in bed and they get more out of breath, um, a, a process that we call orthopnea. Um, John, would you care to comment on that at all? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Uh, the, the you know heart failure. It's important to remember heart failure is a syndrome. It's a syndrome of symptoms. It's not, and and we still teach it. It all came from that famous Framingham study that was started in the 1940s and ended in the 1970s, and and that set the guidelines, and it still holds very much to this day. And basically, it is a syndrome of congestion, and congestion. The, it's basically, it's not just a poor forward flow, but it's a buildup of resistance to flow. And the first organ that gets affected in that system is your lungs. And so people find that they become, you know, as the syndrome progresses, they may start noticing first the shorter breath, second, they might start swelling, but then as it progresses further, as Jack was saying, when you lie down, if people are swelling in their lungs or they're not moving fluid well in their lungs, they feel more short of breath. And this is often how people present to us is that they notice they were steep, they were sleeping on one pillow, two pillows, three pillows. They move to the lazy boy chair, uh, the recliner to sleep. And then when they're pretty bad and it might, if people have never seen heart failure, they'd find this striking, but you know, Richard and I hear this all the time of people saying, I had to sleep at the kitchen table. I put the pillow on the kitchen table and I slept on the table. And that's as it progresses. And as that's happening, that backwards congestion causes the legs to swell and, you know, not always well recognized, but it causes your guts to swell. So people's intestines are bloated. And this is really concerning in that 30% of all people at their first time of diagnosis of heart failure, they're actually clinically malnourished. And that's because those swollen guts, you eat four, five, six bites of food and you feel full right away. And as the water keeps retaining, people decrease their intake and they start losing muscle mass quickly. And so that's that's all part of the syndrome of what we watch for. And to what Richard was saying, unfortunately, you know, we have a lot of people intellectualize it. They just say, I, I'm, not, I'm getting older, I'm not doing the same. I always tell people, you know, getting older is a five to 10 year difference. It's not a one year difference. So if you def if you couldn't, if you could dance a year ago and you can't dance now, that is not because you're getting older or stopped exercising. Um, that's a change in your clinical scenario. Very Along good. those same lines, Jack, there's this weird symptom that about a decade ago, they termed bendopnea, which means shortness of breath when bending over. So uh, there are people who say, I don't understand this. When I bend over to tie my shoes or pick stuff up, I can't breathe. And that's another sign uh, that's subtle but real. And I hear that all the time. And, and we see it in that, you know, you'll see it at the bowling alleys or whatnot, you know, or at the ice skating rink. You'll see people bend over to tie their shoe and they get up and they're clearly shorter. I see it in the public all the time. It's, it's fast. It's, it's really interesting. Very, very interesting stuff. Um, 
You know, Richard, you had indicated, you know, that heart failure specialists have have to be very, very facile with a number of medications. Um, I was hoping maybe you can expand a, a little bit on that about, you know, what kind of treatments do we have for patients um, that, that have heart failure? Yeah, well, the good news is it's changed a lot. When John and I started, we gave leeches and that was about it. But now <laughs> we have medicines. Now, the, the funny thing about medicines is most of the medicines we use in heart failure were not designed to treat heart failure. We sort of stumbled across the fact that they helped. You know, now the first medicines used for heart failure, directly for heart failure, actually were for heart failure, and, and they go back over 200 years. Digoxin was a, a, a leaf that was ground up and was noticed that uh, might help people that had this uh, fluid overload situation. Uh, but in the last four decades, what have emerged are cornerstones of therapy, and all of these were initially developed for other reasons. So they include the so-called beta blocker class of medicines. These were developed to slow the heart rate. And it turns out that for many forms of heart failure, slowing the heart helps because when you slow the heart, it has more time to relax, to recover for the next beat. Remember, your heart does 100,000 reps every single day. No muscle in your body could do that except for the heart. But even the heart, especially in heart failure patients, can uh, get tired, so to speak. So beta blocker therapy for people with weak hearts, terrific advance. And that was sort of stumbled across back in the 1970s and have emerged still as cornerstones of therapy. And then there were pills developed as blood pressure pills that turn out help the heart in, in many different ways, including trying to reduce scarring in the heart and, and, and helping reduce some of the hormonal abnormalities that accrue in heart failure patients. Uh, initially, those were the ACE inhibitors and the angiotensin receptor blocker class of medicines. Now, more recently, a combination pill, the trade name is Atresto. Uh, that's another cornerstone of therapy. And then we have a treatment from more than 50 years ago that was originally developed to block a hormone called aldosterone. And that class, there are now a few members of that class called mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. That class is a third arm. And then finally, uh, through serendipity, uh, a diabetes class of medicines, uh, which are the SGLT2 inhibitors. And these were developed just to lower blood sugar. Turned out that was discovered because apple skin lowered blood sugar and apple skin and trees have the substance in it. But miraculously, and still to this day for uncertain reasons, it helps patients that have the heart failure syndrome. So those are the four cornerstones of therapy that uh, certainly in somebody that has a weak heart uh, should be tried or hopefully on all four of those. And then there are other niche drugs that, that are out there as well. And as I said, there, there are half a dozen uh, that John and I use all the time and others in particular circumstances. But those are the cornerstones of therapy in 2023 and 2024. Yeah, and you had indicated in addition to, you know, it's what you've kind of summarized right now is a lot of different kinds of medications, different classes of medications. And, and to that, I'd also add, you know, water pills, diuretics, you know, lots of those as well. But you'd also indicated previously as well, um, you know, partnering with, you know, cardiologists that do valve repairs and surgeons that do those sorts of things and opening up arteries and that sort of thing as well. So as also part of that. Yeah, and, and that's an important point. So I'll, I'll mention diuretics. You mentioned them, so so-called water pills. Uh, in the heart failure syndrome, the kidney is sort of inappropriately told to make less urine. So uh, even if a heart failure patient eats and drinks normal amounts, and sometimes they don't, but if they do, they'll hang on to some of that fluid to excess and that 
of course, we don't make fluid. It has to be ingested. But if you don't make enough urine, then you'll have volume overload. So diuretics will help correct that. They don't, they don't seem to alter the natural biologic disarray that occurs in the heart, which is why we focus on the other medicines. And then, as you've alluded to, there have been major advances in fixing uh, valves that are either don't open appropriately or don't close properly. And then importantly, coordination. If you think about a tug of war, it's really important to have everybody pulling on the rope at the same time. And so one of the main advances that has occurred in the last decades is recognizing that in certain individuals, if the heart is discoordinated and not, not all beating at the same time, you can put in special fangled, newfangled pacemakers, which will resynchronize and reorganize the heartbeat to the heart's benefit. So there are lots of, these are all the different specialties we mentioned, the electrophysiologists, the structural heart people, the interventional cardiologists that the heart failure uh, docs will call upon inappropriate patients to help their well-being. And that that's kind of the the bread and butter, I think, of, of heart failure. Um, and then, John, I'm going to let you comment on, you know, more of those unusual things, but for the, the very sickest of patients about implantation of pumps into the heart and maybe even transplant and stuff. Can you comment a little on that? Yeah, for sure. Um, the, you know, the, the biggest predictor of outcome when people always ask me, you know, how long do I have to live? You know, w one of the first things people do when they get the diagnosis, they Google it and they, you know, and they see the 50 percent are dead in five years and then people get a little bit shell shocked. Um, I always talk to them that, and, you know, Richard just, you know, uh, uh, spoke to this, that, um, your exercise capacity is probably the most prognostic factor to how long you have to live. And we break it down into metabolic equivalents to some degree. So like, you know, we, we look at people's age and what they're able to do. And if you can walk indefinitely versus, you know, people who are shorter breath, just taking a shower. Those are how we look at people of how much, how, what stage of their heart failure they're in. Ultimately, you don't even want to start addressing that until people are truly been optimized with the medical therapy that Richard was talking about, that we truly got them on all the known medications that have been known to improve heart function. And we, we've, we've truly optimized their electrical system and we've truly optimized their valves and everything of that nature and their, and their blood vessels of their heart. And once that's done, if people are functionally still very limited, they can't go to the supermarket, they can't walk their groceries back to their car, um, you know, they're, they're short of breath washing dishes, they're short of breath vacuuming their house or going for a two mile per hour walk. Those are people that we then start investigating whether they would meet the criteria for advanced therapies. And currently, the advanced therapies are heart transplantation and mechanical heart pumps. And, you know, heart transplantation has grown to some degree across the country. However, it is still a limited resource. Now, people have done a remarkable job of getting better therapy to make more hearts available. There are devices that make it used to be that if you couldn't get the heart in somebody within four hours that you couldn't do it. And there have been new technologies that allow hearts to last longer outside the body to get farther and farther away to people. 
But these are all, these are the therapies that we have right now. There are also artificial heart pumps that we're currently, even though the, the one that's used now is called the third generation one, it's actually probably the fifth generation that's out there. But it is the, um, there are artificial heart pumps that can be surgically implanted into people. I did a back of the napkin review of this a few years ago. And if you look at all the people we save with transplants, artificial hearts, um, ECMO, advanced therapy devices, it's probably on the order of about 10,000 people a year. And so it just can't be reiterated, even though I professionally um, manage people with artificial hearts, it can't be said enough that getting people on the right medications would save about 70,000 lives a year. So, so yes, it is, it is only when you've optimized the medication therapies as much as possible. And if people continue to struggle, we should be looking at people if they are fit and robust enough to go on to consider some of these advanced therapies like a heart transplant or an artificial heart pump. Thank you for that, John. Richard, we, we have um, another big part of management of heart failure is telling patients they need to adjust their lifestyle. You know, they're, and, and a lot of doctors preach lifestyle modifications, but it really, really matters for those heart failure patients too. Can you comment a little bit about how crucial lifestyle modification is for these patients? Yeah, actually, John alluded to one of those lifestyle changes and, and maybe lifestyle and now pharmacology comes into play and that's treatment of morbid obesity. And, you know, we don't photosynthesize it. We don't make calories, but we have a very hard time preventing ourselves from eating calories. And as a consequence, we have a scourge of modern societies of having people that weigh much too much. And it's not just hard to, it's not just fat deposited in the belly and in the thighs and in, in your arms, et cetera. You get, you actually get fat deposits within the heart muscle. You alter the heart's function. You get diabetes which further alters the heart function. So one common thread of the explosion of heart failure patients that we've been seeing and will see is really related to the effects of obesity. And uh, if, if we could find a diet that everybody stuck to and lost weight and they went out and exercised, that'd be great. Uh, that hasn't worked out. There, there are 5,000 diets for a reason. It's because they, they can't, for most people, work. Our hope is that now that we've unlocked some of the clues as to pharmacologically, how can we achieve weight loss? And now with these injectable medicines and soon, hopefully oral analogs of those, that people will get back to their, close to their ideal weight. And in some of those people, the heart failure will get better just because they've lost weight. So weight loss is a crucial part. Exercise also helps. And as I said, it doesn't it's interesting, people think that if they exercise, their heart will get stronger. Well, I already mentioned the heart does 100,000 reps a day. So exercising doesn't really help the heart per se, but what it does is help everything else. It helps your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your blood sugar. It helps blood vessel integrity, et cetera, et cetera. And as a consequence, uh, if you can convince a heart failure patient, even somebody who's not overweight, for example, to exercise, they will do better. They will have a better exercise capacity and many of the adverse things that accompany heart failure will improve with exercise. So weight loss and exercise, just as they are in the general population, are helpful at heart failure. Things that we are not sure are helpful are dietary manipulations. And there, there has, for many years, the standard was to avoid salt intake. And it turns out that when put to the test, that just hasn't borne fruit, that 
Unfortunately, restricting salt doesn't seem to lead to terrific benefits, unlike exercise or weight loss. And John alluded to this, there, there are nutritional aspects of heart failure, some of which we haven't fully elucidated, I will say. But in recent times, there's been recognition that the heart needs iron to, uh, to beat appropriately. And in many of our heart failure patients, they don't absorb iron appropriately and they are low in iron. And so we're big aficionados here in Santa Monica of restoring normal iron levels. And that also makes people feel better. So between exercise and weight loss and uh, perhaps uh, appropriate nutrition, do I think we can help our heart failure patients? Absolutely. Thank you very much. John, these patients often being very, very sick, I imagine that the care of them must really have an impact on their family members, their caregivers, people around them. Can you comment a little bit about that and, and whether there are any support uh, systems for those people helping these, uh, these patients out? That's, that's, a, that's a great question, Jack. Um, this is often a, a problem. I've actually spent a bit of time looking on this and I'm working on a a publication for it. There is a syndrome of heart failure, but when you look at prognosis, uh, again, um, frailty is the biggest concern. And, you know, as, as we've been talking about, you know, heart failure can hit people of all ages, but most people will be older. And with that advanced age, one of the big syndromes is inability to be active. The other part is a loss of muscle mass it all leads to a significant amount of frailty. And when we look into our hospitalizations and who stays in the hospital for long periods of time and who bounces back into hospitals, it very much correlates with frailty. And, and we've actually gone on to show that this, you know, it's very similar with other medical conditions, whether it be lung disease or, or cancer or something. And when, when, when we're talking about 24% um, of our population will be uh, over the age of 65 by the age of, by the, by 2060, this is going to be an increasingly concerning situation. You know, we, we've already seen like in Japan, for example, they've been dealing with this already. So, we need to do everything we can to combat frailty and to what Richard just said, keeping people active and keeping adequate muscle mass. Services are difficult right now. Um, you know, we're talking about nursing homes, post-hospitalization care, care providers. It will, the number of people with disease will outpace the, uh, some of the support services that we have. And that is one of the major things that we've been looking into is how to reinvent our systems of care. Because for sure, healthcare in the United States is going to be very much shifting to a phase of chronic care management, as well as its acute care management. And so we do have, as a culture, have to adopt to different ways of managing uh, advanced situations, changing how we look at nursing homes and rehab facilities and community centers and things of that nature. So this is actually a very active situation in healthcare right now. How are we going to manage a chronically ill population that will remain chronically ill for a protracted period of time? Especially since, you know, there's, you know, we, we're seeing it everywhere, the loneliness epidemics in America and such. So maintaining systems of support are going to be incredibly important to people dealing with this type of heart condition. Yeah, and as, as John just said, I mean, when you have no muscle mass, you will fall down. And when you fall down, you will break your hip. 
Yeah. And if you're 87 years old and you're a frail woman or man who's fallen down, broken their hip, you you'd probably have a 50% chance of not surviving that. So one yeah. of the reasons that heart failure patients die is not just due to heart failure. It's all the things that accompany this downward spiral where their arms and their legs can't hold them up and they end up in a wheelchair and they get blood clots and pneumonia and fractures and all the things that occur with frailty. So I want to second what he said, which is that physical activity and, and this is where things like cardiac rehab and physical physical therapists and all those things come into play. The problem is, is when you have 5 million people that need that, how do you orchestrate that? And I think that you mentioned caregivers. One of the things that caregivers can do is to make sure, like I did with my 95-year-old mother-in-law, that twice a day I had to take her for walks because otherwise she was going to end up an invalid in a wheelchair. Mm. Wow. Well, you kind of alluded to this a little bit, Richard, and I'm going to ask you to expand a little bit about you know access to care um, and resources in in um, for for heart failure patients. Are, you know, uh, and I think we're increasingly becoming aware of disparities in access to care. For not everybody gets e equal access to care. What what sort of uh, you know obstacles are you seeing or patterns that you're seeing for that? You know, uh, regarding that. Well, there's no question. I mean, and John mentioned earlier, th this turns out to be an enormous expense to our society and to Medicare, et cetera, because these uh, people who are chronically ill are high utilizers of medical services, as well as all the other things, be they occupational therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy, social workers, et cetera. Uh, so there is a financial barrier for sure. And, you know, the people who are most likely to have issues are going to be people that don't have financial resources uh, or people who live in rural areas where it's hard enough even to find a primary physician much less a cardiologist or, or heaven forbid a cardiologist who specializes in heart failure there are many hospitals where there is no doctor who specializes in heart failure uh, there are communities where there's nobody who is facile with taking care of these patients and then, of course, even within, uh, these are mostly, as John says, over 65 years old, so they're Medicare age for the most part. Uh, over a third of them are Medicaid patients, and many are Medicare patients. But those, those systems have limits on how much, for example, physical therapy you can have per year. It's a dollar limit per year, and you can use that up really quickly. So part of the answer to this will be to try to shift resources that are better used long-term. John alluded to this, somebody can park in the hospital for 10 days, but it, the better way to do it is if you kept them out of the hospital in the first place, that would free up 50,000 or $100,000 that you could spend on uh, having some physical therapist go and keep that person out of the hospital and, and appropriate medicines. Uh, one of the problems we're gonna face in the coming years is the cost of medicines. The procurement cost is going through the roof for new medicines. and especially for some niche parts of heart failure where the medicines will not be generically available for quite a while for people to have bills. I currently have a heart failure patient right now whose bill for medicine, hold on your hat here, is $1.2 million per year. Now, do the math. There is no way in the world we can afford to have more than a few people on a million dollars worth of medicines per year. But that's where we're headed. So we need to come to grips with that as a society so that we can keep these people functional. It's no good to keep somebody alive as a, you know, who's not functional. We want functionality in addition to length of life. 
Thanks for commenting on that too, Richard. And I know that you've been instrumental in, you know, at the national level in, in, in working on those systems and stuff like that for, for optimizing, um, you know, healthcare access and stuff like that and thinking about the future, you know, of, of, of management of these patients in the long term. John, I've been kind of excited about the, the fact that you have worked a bit and, and developed an AI platform to help kind of provide access for cardiology care for everyone. Can you comment a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, not not to keep throwing statistics, but I mean, it's it's um, you know one of the great things about COVID is that if anything, it 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 hastened the necessity of making change, and so probably going to be one of the greatest innovators of healthcare um, now with having more virtual clinics and things of that nature. There are some very simple statistics. We have an aging population. But the other concerning statistic in that is that 45% of all cardiologists in 2018 were over the age of 56. Okay, we'll just let that settle in. So 45% of all cardiologists in 2018 were more than 56 years old. At our current graduation rates, for every two cardiologists retiring right now, we're replacing one. And of people graduating right now from medical schools and whatnot, there's a, not everybody's thinking that they're planning to go into clinical practice. So we have the confluence of many issues at one time, this massive population boom, we've been successful keeping people alive longer, but we're going to be shifting more to the management of chronic disease. At the same time, I did a a little, uh, when I started my healthcare journey, there were about 2,000 articles published each year in the field of heart failure. In 2023, there's 22,000 articles published. So the information doubling time is. I read up. all of those, didn't you? And Richard, Richard, <laughs> Richard has, they're all behind him on his shelves <laughs> there. Um, but actually, if, if there were any doctor I would know who's read all of them, it would be Richard. <laughs> but we are living in a world of very rapid innovation and publication. I will tell you, I knew better who to put somebody on aspirin 10 years ago than <laughs> I know now because of all the nuances of, of such things. So facing that, and then there, there's a famous movement started in 2005 to get everybody with heart failure on the right medications to treat heart failure. And what we've seen is that there has not been a dramatic improvement over a 10-year period on getting people on the right medications. And so that's when, you know, Richard and I were talking about earlier that one of the mainstays of what we do is just get people on. There are four classes of medications you would want to get everybody with uh, systolic heart failure on. And when you look at national data, only anywhere from eight to 12% of people are on those medications. Okay, eight to 12%. Wow. And of the people who are on them, only 2% are at the doses they should be at. And then to Richard's point before about the specialized pacemakers and whatnot, only about 17% of people have received those therapies. So we still struggle with getting people because one of the problems in healthcare right now is that 
you know, all of our physicians are being barraged with people trying to get access. Anybody's listening to this podcast, you can think about how long it's taking you to get in to see a physician. And then you think about how long it takes you to get to see a subspecialist. And so that time from when somebody sees a patient to when they come back for another medication adjustment is getting longer and longer and longer. So, you know, it's just like how, um, you know, like any field, we have to innovate. We have to work with what systems of care we have. And, you know, one of the great things that's happened in healthcare over the last decade is that we've moved significantly over to an electronic medical record. And the push is to start using this electronic medical record to actually assist us in managing patients. And so what we've been trying to do is break the brick and mortar system of using electronic medical records and taking advantage of a lot of, of specialists that are in healthcare, the nurse practitioners, the nurses, the pharmacists who can practice independently to identify patients. And so what we're trying to do is create a informatics-based system throughout, you know, you know, for us, it's throughout our 50 hospital-wide system that will identify patients, identify if they're receiving the right medications, identify if they're at the right doses, identify if they've received the appropriate surgical interventions or procedural interventions to make their heart failure better. And the hope would be, the vision would be that this could happen without the need to bring somebody to the brick and mortar, okay? And that's, and so when you do need to come to see the brick and mortar, somebody like Richard Wright or myself, it's when they need the real true subspecialty expertise to get them to the next level. And by doing that, just, you know, like I said before, the data that was published was that if we just did the basic care right, we would probably save 70,000 lives a year in the United States. And so that's, that's what we've been actively, it's not only that we are working on it, we have to work on it. There is no question that the future of healthcare and the future of honestly of, of the dollars spent in this country rely on us using informatics to manage our patients properly. We just don't have the brick and mortar and the, the people to do it. It just makes me really excited that we can, you know, with, with a big system like we have at Providence, um, that we can, you know, that you've been able to deliver, you know, this or develop this, and then that we can really use it throughout the entire system in a way that can be meaningful and just affect a lot of patients' lives. And just, it, like you say, improve, you know, access to care, improve delivery of care for all of these patients, uh, and use the, use the electronic medical record that we have to, to the, the benefit of the patient. So... Well, thank you. And I just want to thank both of you today for um, joining us today. You, you're, you're just phenomenal physicians and, and you're full of so much information. This is a confusing topic. And like I, I pointed out before, the sickest patients really in, in all of medicine sometimes and, and certainly within cardiology. So thank you today for joining us, uh, both of you. Um, and I want to... Yeah, and I want to thank our audience, too, for joining us today on Heart Matters. Uh, we look forward to continuing the important conversation on heart health with more experts from Providence in future episodes. Make sure to listen to all our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on social media. We can be found on X and Facebook at Providence and Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, go to Providence.org. 
And please remember, the inf information that's provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks again for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you. Thank you.